Welcome to Stupsin. Stupsin is a series of Dharma talks by Anthony Osler, Dai Chong Osho, the guiding teacher at Poplar Grove Zendo in South Africa, and a former Zen monk. The talks draw from traditional Zen teachings and koans to make them relevant wherever we live and whatever life we lead. If you feel inspired by these teachings and would like to make an offering to support Stupsin, you can go to our website, stupsin.co.za, to find out how. So today I'm going to talk, uh, hopefully, uh, about attention, among other things. And if I uh, can find the piece of paper, I'd like to read something to you at the end. And what I'd like to say at the beginning is that attention is what happens when you're not trying to pay attention. I had this insight last night when I went outside and the moon was up and the stars were there and I had the privilege which one has if you live in a nature reserve like this of being able to pee on the lawn which is why we live here of course <laughs> and suddenly as a deep relaxation uh, overcame me I realized that I was actually paying attention in a very natural and full-bodied way. I don't mean to say that urination and attention are the only things that go together, but I just thought I'd sketch the tone <laughs> of the experience. <clears throat> And I'll move on as quickly as I can. So, <clears throat> what we do when we come to Zen practice uh, is that we, we, we are told to pay attention and to develop the muscle of attention. And coming from a distracted uh, space, this feels uh, deeply and instinctively uh, uh, relieving. And then we find, okay, this is, this is a wonderful experience, learning to pay attention instead of just being uh, distracted and firing in every direction all at once. Somehow the stillness and phew, openness that happens with uh, paying attention uh, uh, comes to save us. And then we find that it's not always like that. And sometimes we come and we just can't settle, we can't pay attention as the way, in the way we understand it. 
we say, inevitably, last retreat uh, it was really easy. I could attend all the time. Uh, now I'm just struggling. Or in 1968, I had a good experience of attention and I've been trying to get it back ever since. That's the kind of conversation we have. And we then we try harder. And the more we try, the more uh, a sense that we are being fully present just seems to recede. There's something about the anxious, unsettled, teeth-gritting, determined effort to attend that stands in the way of attention. And we are finding ourselves at the face of the great impasse of Zen practice, of any meditation practice. The impasse that says, uh, on the other side of where I am is what I'm looking for. And I try and find the doorway and I don't succeed and I try again and I read more Dharma books and I go on more online courses and it doesn't seem to change the fundamental situation that the self that comes to practice that yearns for enlightenment, that yearns for relief and release and openness. Uh, that self is somehow standing in the way of the very thing for which it yearns. It's a wonderful absurdity that we're sitting right in the midst of and, of course, then what we do is we say things like, well, I, must, I mustn't try. So we try not to try. Which is not only just another inverted form of effort, uh, but it, by this stage we're also watching ourselves all the time to say, is it working? Isn't it working? Am I getting better at this? Um, no, I'm not, of course, is generally the answer. And so one, one tries to not try a little bit harder. And the whole thing is tied into a kind of a knot. And the knot doesn't seem to disentangle itself. So, the instruction to pay attention at some point leads us to this fundamental impasse, the realization that, that I am standing in the way of enlightenment. Uh, that the self is standing in the way of selflessness. And that very tension is a signal uh, that we are uh, right in the heart of the impasse.
And if we look at traditional Dharma teachings, the traditional Zen teachings, we suddenly remember that they are peppered with instructions like uh, let go, um, give up, don't know, move, and all sorts of things like that. Some kind of instruction, stop trying, relax, there's nothing to find here. These are all uh, aimed at the self that is trying to find what, by definition, it won't find until it, uh, until it disappears. And we try and read our way out of it. We try and argue our way out of it. We try and thrash our way out of it. Uh, we sit all night. We do whatever. And the knot still tightens. And then the instruction is there. Just let go. And at some point in the impasse, we hear that. You don't have to go out and pee on the lawn. There's some moment when you really believe that you can let it be. And just as you're sitting there now, as I'm sitting here now, just to take a breath and let it go out and feel my body. And already the the lived experience of this moment uh, changes uh, fundamentally. And we remember also that uh, the Blue Cliff Record talks of this very situation. I suppose in a way every koan does, but in Blue Cliff Record where they say, when you meet the impasse, change and you are already through. Change there simply meaning my whole being just to let go, just to stop struggling so hard just for a moment. Then already uh, things have changed as I have changed. And the whole world uh, becomes part of me again. And there's a sense of, oh, of course, Nice to see you again. Where you been? <laughs> so in, in, in the Zen tradition, um, we, we often use the word awakeness 
to be awake. And that may be uh, in many ways a, a word that's, that's very helpful. We, we wake up as naturally as we do uh, in the morning after sleeping. We open our eyes, there it is. Absolutely naturally and uncomplicatedly here. And then we get up and make coffee and do all the necessary things. So that's the first thing about, about attention. It's, it's absolutely at the heart of our practice. Both being present in the ordinary sense we'd understand it, as well as the fact that right there in the effort or the practice to pay attention, we come across the, the self in its most insistent guise. And like every other koan, it requires some kind of loosening and softening and, and humor to just allow us uh, to go through the gate. We don't open the gate. As the koan book says, it's a gateless gate. But suddenly uh, we're on the other side. So that's that's the, the first thing I, I I wanted to just look at. The other is that when we uh, pay attention, or when when we are awake in this natural way, we are awake. In, in the fullness of our being. It's an embodied uh, natural alertness and intelligence that is there. We could say it's an evolutionary quality, it's an instinctive quality of, of awakeness in whatever situation we're in. But it's not primarily a mental activity uh, by itself. It's, it's a full-bodied life that we find ourselves in. And in that natural uh, attentiveness, sometimes the focus is really narrow, the focus of, of threading a needle. the focus of uh, looking at a wooden floorboard. Sometimes it's as wide as the universe itself. It's our sense of where we are in this place with this climate, with all that is known to us 
about uh, climate change, global warming, uh, human culpability and indifference. And our attention is naturally wide and intelligent. Similarly, when we meet a person in front of us, it's not just, I can see there, they have a long nose and a pair of glasses and a funny gray hat. It's I see, when I'm not talking to myself, as it were, about the person and putting them in boxes from which they invariably escape, of course. But when I'm not... Uh, trying to to think the matter of attention, I'm naturally aware of who they are and how they are, what color they are, what race they are, what language they're speaking, what age they are, what gender they are. So that in my natural intelligence, I am absorbing an unfathomable a number of, uh, of inputs that are part of the situation. And of course, I am contributing myself. And it's out of that kind of relaxed, awake relatedness and connectedness that I can deal with the person in front of me. That I can understand perhaps better their relationship to me, or the things that, that hurt them or make them angry, or the things that, that make them laugh, that enable them to be at home in this relationship. So sometimes it's very narrow, sometimes it's very wide. And we need to, to just uh, be at home in that fluidity. That it's not something to control, it's something that is deeply natural to us. We talk of our original nature in Zen, or our Buddha nature, or enlightened nature. Uh, there's a sense in all that language that that it's us at our most intuitive and instinctively attuned uh, to, to the life we find ourselves in. And that has uh, always a sense of, of, of sort of elemental simplicity about it. I'm reminded of a, a a story told by the late Korean Zen master uh, De Sunsanim, who some of you have know. Some of him, some of you have studied with him or his students. He talks of uh, the Zen, uh, 17th century Japanese Zen poet Basho, a famous poet, of course, and. Um, Basho went to a place called uh, Matsushima and there was a poetry competition there. Of course, I don't know if this is true, but it doesn't matter. That's Desens in his style. 
So he went to Matsushima where all the poets gathered and everyone wrote beautiful poems comparing the mountain to, uh, to all sorts of beautiful things and, and lovely turns of phrase and so on. And Basho then gave his uh, contribution to the poetry festival and his poem was Matsushima, oh Matsushima, Matsushima. And of course he won the poetry competition uh, for, that, uh, for that effort. When I read that, I went back to some of the, the uh, writings that I was referring to last month at the Zoom from the, the old, uh, what we have of old Bushman oral uh, writings, stories and things. And I came across, uh, I came across this. The daisy is opening. Does the daisy open? The daisy is open. Wonderful. Very clear. Daisy Matsushima. There's a sense that uh, beyond the artifice of... Um, of words, uh, we can sometimes use them to express something uh, very natural and pure. Which brings me uh, rather anxiously to something that uh, I am uh, working on, uh, some writing. I, I can see, fine, my darling, thank you. Um, my, She's my light. Uh, I don't need the ceiling. Um, it's a piece that I'm working on that I think has some connection <laughs> with uh, what I've been talking out about, both in the sense of that our attention is not just what's in front of us in the narrow physical sense of the floor is brown, the wall is white. But it's also uh, the shape of the room, the atmosphere of the room, the history of the room, all the love and attention that's gone into it, uh, that sort of breadth, that this, there's nothing excluded from our life of awakeness. And also it has a sense, uh, at least when writing it, I had the sense of how when we start thinking about things, we naturally begin to uh, become engrossed in uh, the way we see things and start pulling away in some way or other. And that every now and then something happens to remind us how how simple and inclusive it all is. So, here is the piece that I'm writing. Uh, it's called Who Am I? 
which is a kind of Zen joke, but that's another, another month's talk. <laughs> I am the tree falling into the silt of clear inland waters. I am the aquifer far below, rising to the surface. I am the planets that porcupines dream. I am the tortoise drinking from the stream. I bide my time as the tree turns to stone in this vast unpeopled plain. I am the hunter beside the spring cutting Irland into rock. I am the mother digging for roots, her daughter on her back. I am the trek boer who takes the water. I am the child who outruns the commando. I am the slow tears that spill over this contested earth. I am the felt that's turning brown. I am apartheid gone underground. I am waiting at the roadside for any kind of work, living in a place that's going berserk. I am hunger and despair, potholed roads and poisoned air. I am sanctified corruption and domestic abuse, money that's gone from the public purse. I am the high priest of intolerance and pre-election promises. The place has already gone to the dogs. The barking is endless under this demented sky. I am also the neighbour cheerfully greeting, the mother making breakfast for the children still sleeping, girls laughing for the love of it, taxis hooting for the hell of it, Miners singing hymns as they call off the search, refugees safe in the nave of the church, making friends, finding time, breaking bread, spilling wine, courage and resilience, unexpected waves of brilliance, the glow in the heart of goodness. And then there is this. On Thursday afternoon on the farm, the stockman Dirk Faree and I inspect the windmill. He climbs the tower to check the oil. I can't follow you any more, I say. I'm too old. But here's something I can do instead. So let's go to the Zendo. I take him to the Zendo. He knows the room well. He went to Sunday school in it. He buried his father-in-law in it, got married in it, fixed the roof of it. And we wash our hands and take off our boots, bow and go in. Him in his overalls, me in my borrowed jersey. Sit like you're sitting on a horse, I say. We sit. Breathe like you're snoring after lunch, I say. We breathe. Him and me. The room. The stones. The wooden floor. The very stillness makes me cry. The just this is it of ordinary men. Unexpected friends.
and effortless Zen. We bow in our seats and rise. I'm going to put the tools away, he says. The dogs still bark in the ancient plain. The rainbow still lights up the felt after rain. And the windmill still turns the ten thousand things. I am the broken string. I am the bells that ring. I am the stars, the stars that sing. The dogs still bark in the ancient plain. The rainbow still lights up the felt after rain. And the windmill still turns the ten thousand things. I am the broken string. I am the bells that ring. I am the stars, the stars that sing. Thank you so much. <laughs>